deserves to talk about games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about Pathfinder 2nd Edition. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast? Well, on this podcast, we like to talk about games. And something that we have been playing and talked about a lot is Pathfinder. The uh, tabletop role-playing system. They have just released their second edition, and this monster of a book, 650 pages, um, has a lot of content that we're going to focus on today. We're going to be hitting up the, you know, like how to play chapter, um, the ancestries, and the classes today, and we might return later in the future with some thoughts about other aspects of the game. Yeah, um, I think that this might... Uh, serve like like this is probably gonna be a little bit more overviewy. Um, once we've got a chance to play and read a little bit closer, a deeper dive might be in order, but that's probably not for a little while at least. Uh, so do you what what do we want to start with? Do we want to talk about like I, I think maybe the first thing we should talk about is, is kind of some of the the bigger overarching differences and how that kind of affects mm-hmm. it. Does that make sense to you? Um, sure. I think the first thing at least that comes to my mind is that the action system in um encounter mode um is changed from the old system of standard move and then swift and then some actions are full round action or some actions are full actions and some actions are full round actions i think there's another type of action that's actually your whole turn and then you also get free actions and then you also get attacks of opportunity and uh it was confusing because it kind of like built on top of each on top of itself, um, layer by layer over the course of ten years. The new system is very much simpler, or very very much more simple. Rather, um, you get three actions per turn, one reaction, and free actions are free. Um, uh, and there was some limitations that aren't all that complicated, but it's a very good framework for adding in new things. You don't have to worry about things fitting into these weird little slots. Some things that were kind of in the open as to like how much it took to do right like like this game has some stuff based around like how many of your hands are free it's very clearly a free action to release one of your hands and then an interact action to put your hand back on it let's say if you were using a uh like a bastard sword and you want to change from the the two hand grip to the one hand grip because mm-hmm. you had like something to do with your other hand like maybe it's like a caster um or if you were a uh or if you know you just for whatever reason, needed to like take your great hand off your great sword to open a door. Let's say, um, it's all really well fitted out. Um, the rules are fairly comprehensive um, with with a lot of this stuff, and I think that's gonna go a long way in making the game flow a little bit better. Uh, how do you feel about it? Yeah, so I absolutely think uh, the new action economy is probably key to understanding the the way that pathfinder has changed um i actually think there are also there are a lot of like big level changes that are kind of like this that have kind of almost like you know codified the game to be a different version of itself but none of them make the same sort of broad systematic change to um the way the action economy and the minute to minute of the game plays as much as you know the actions uh themselves getting changed like the other system that i think that they kind of added was this idea between downtime exploration and encounter modes right and these are three explicit right like modes of play and 
part of what that has done is allowed them to kind of create this big index and and um you know library of actions that you can undertake when you're in any of the different modes right and reference those throughout the game and throughout like the the book right so a lot of the times for instance you'll be seeing you'll be like reading classes or um reading ancestries and you'll see like whenever you take a like seek action with a capital s or like a stride action with a capital s kind of thing right like these are now all referring to the same individual action that you can kind of like understand implicitly. Whereas that kind of thing was much less common in the original Pathfinder because it was so like freeform, right? Um, or it, it was weird because so, cause, cause I wouldn't say the first one was more freeform. It just didn't bother to define a couple of things that were kind of important or a lot of things that were kind of common actions. It was like, and then you can do that and didn't talk enough about it to kind of really lay down ground rules. That mm. makes sense. Um, yeah, that, that's pretty fair. Um, and this game has gone to the effort of doing that. I think part of that problem, too, was that there were things that didn't slot neatly into this would take a standard, this would take a move, this would take a swift. Um, and so kind of forcing them into that was weird, and maybe that's why it went undetailed for so long, especially in the core. I think it's also had this weird kind of... Uh, uh, fall forward problem where like you didn't want to invalidate like Paizo rather didn't want to invalidate anything in the core rulebook ever because it's the only thing you could reasonably assume that everybody playing the game had um, yeah. and as a result uh, like you, I think I think there was some just baggage just from that core rulebook that was written 10 years ago that you couldn't really get around reasonably without some problem like some some structural problems put it um, I get that. I, that that makes that makes a certain amount of sense to me. Um, um something else what that are some... okay, yeah, yeah. I, I was gonna say. So I have been reading through the books a little bit more closely than I think you have. I've had the book for longer, and something I've seen as kind of a theme. I'm not super sure about how I feel about it. Um, in aggregate, um, is that a lot more seems to be explicitly given. A lot more control seems to be explicitly given to GMs for. Uh, certain adjudications, which I think probably on balance is good to just kind of hammer home that um, they call it rule one, which is, uh, you know, uh, well, it's not, hmm. rule zero is somewhere in the book, but rule one is like you, you're, the rules, you use your group to decide what works for you as a group and what's fun and you can invalidate whatever you want, right? But they kind of hammer home GM agency a lot um, in the book, which I like kind of as a concept. And I think in a lot of places, Kind of saying explicitly this is GM Fiat makes sense, but other times I think it it, it kind of uh, it it kind of uh, balances on the the wrong side. Like the just to give you an example of one that I think is a little bit weird is there are three levels of darkness now. There's um, light, bright light, dim light, and darkness. Um, mm -hmm. And there is a note at the end of the section that says when you move from darkness to bright light. You may be dazzled for a number of rounds that the GM decides, um, which is, you know, makes sense thematically. But from like a kind of person who really enjoys the crunch side of things, that feels like not that it's necessarily bad. It's just kind of a lot looser than I would, would have thought, if that makes sense. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I've seen they I have almost always seen clips like. At the very end of, you know, some 
so, like anything that could be like sort of argued about in a rules lawyer sense, it seems like they basically said the GM always wins, right? Yeah. Like, so for instance, there's stuff in like the champion section. For those of you who don't know, they have replaced the class paladin with the class champion of which paladin is a subset is like the lawful good subset of champion um and there's a whole bunch of stuff in there about like you have a code you have anathemas to that code you need to behave correctly and not behave poorly or whatever and and they they're explaining all of this different stuff and kind of like how the rules work and how um you know the the sort of ethics and morality of being a lawful good you know champion is or whatever and at the end of anything that talks about that kind of stuff they're like if there are if there's ever a conflict if there are any any ever any questions ask your gm and i think that stuff is in there mostly to just kind of like serve as a tiebreaker um especially because there are places where you can sort of like rules lawyer specific things and you can tell that they kind of thought about this inside of that champion section because they they are like calling out these kinds of like edge cases right um but what the edge cases do is um but or i'm sorry but what that phrase does is it allows you to anytime anything like that comes up you just say look it's up to your gm right to ask your gm about it if the gm decides x then x kind of thing yeah, um, no, and so that, that is so much more common than it was in the first edition. I, I agree, and I, I definitely think that that is on balance. Uh, I, I'm going to change my stance. I, you know, on balance, I think it's definitely a good thing. Um, but I do think there are, there are times when they call out things that maybe didn't need to be called out in a way that like just kind of raised more questions than they answer. I guess I don't know. Like, like th- that that darkness example in particular stood out to me. But I've seen things along those lines too that feel a little. Uh, weird um yeah no i mean i definitely get it and i i also sort of think that there are um you know troubles <laughs> uh that i would associate with kind of like um putting that much power in in the gm's hands but you know given the state of the game i feel like it kind of you know yeah. makes sense uh yeah yeah kind of have to do it because otherwise you do sort of open yourself up to getting in these I don't know, shitty fucking yeah situations where you're like getting into arguments with the players, kind of thing. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely that's definitely fair. Um, did we want to talk about any other big changes before we got into some nitty gritty? Um, maybe the rarity system. Have you read anything about it at all? Yeah, so I'm not super up on the rarity system. I remember it popping up in the in the playtest, um, but if it has been kind of like changed or anything uh here then i'm i'm not super familiar um so just just to kind of go over it there there are options on every on on most everything actually um that uh gives it kind of a rarity common uncommon and i think rare and unique are the is the full stack i haven't seen a lot of rare stuff uh but i'm still i still haven't gotten to like the item section where i assume Mm -hmm. most of that pops up but the players are assumed to have access to everything common and that there, there, there. It is reasonable them for them to at some point get access to something that is uncommon, um, uh, usually through some sort of downtime activity or whatnot. Now, I think some of the cool stuff that you can do with this are things like the Eastern weapons, for instance, are all uncommon, and there's a human heritage feat that lets you pick up one of those weapons, uh, as, like gives you access to one of those weapons. So if you want to play, you know, like the warrior from the East or whatever, um. Mm. 
And like, there are also some suggestions in the book about how if you are running a game set in like, say, say Tianja, um, you make those weapons common, you make the Western weapons uncommon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that's cool. I think one of the, 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 the other big point system, I think this is probably the, the one that gets the most work out of it for me at least, is a lot of the spells, especially the spells that kind of make other classes redundant, are marked as uncommon. Um, also, some of the spells that are like a little bit uh, harder to, you know, a, a little bit harder to, to balance around if you can just arbitrarily get them. Um, mm-hmm. Our mark is uncommon, so you can't base, basically a wizard, your wizard can't take it on level up unless you know you've got GM permission, um, which I think is important for kind of enabling some of the games that we've talked about, some of the types of games we've talked about in the past. Um, things like uh, remove poison and remove disease, uh, things like teleport, um, all these things that can kind of trivialize certain types of of games, like speak with dead, anything that would like instant solve a mystery. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, that don't require like a ton of investment of your uh, uh, of your character in order to, to to get and let you just pass by challenges. I think it's really well handled by this rarity system. Um, and kind of in the same vein, like you know, like fly is a lot shorter now, so you can't just kind of like uh, invalidate. So it's like five minutes and it's single target until you. I think. Uh, yeah, like, I mean, we've talked about that on yeah. the cast, right? Yeah, like that's exactly why I bring can... it up. Yeah you know kind of change uh sort of like the exploration I, i've actually seen a lot of changes along those lines that i really appreciate like so for instance there is one for druid uh for like the wild shape druid that allows you as the wild shape druid to assume a less powerful animal companion form um and in doing so, that animal companion form lasts a lot longer. And basically what it means is like, okay, look, if you want to activate wolf form to get scent or something to like hunt down this guy, you can do so with like this specific class feat or something, you know, like, yeah. and I think that stuff is really, really interesting. And, and it kind of comes out of uh, the way that they have chosen to break up the different modes of play. I think... You know, there are a lot of changes here that are going to be people's kinds of, like, favorites and they're not going to be really impactful. And there's uh, a lot of different opinions I could see kind of, like, coming down on that. I'd probably say that the action system is, you know, uh, the biggest change that they have. But this three modes of play sort of characterization is probably going to have the biggest impact on at least the way that I think about the game um, because of how it changes things in the abstract does that make sense yeah no I, I absolutely i need to actually read deeper i got to the encounter section of how to play but i have not gotten to the downtime and exploration mode. i think that's some of the stuff yeah me neither but um uh, i definitely I, i'm definitely excited to see some of this stuff because you know i do think that kind of like exploration mode and downtime mode are something that have been traditionally a little like disfavored um, i don't know if disfavored is the word but like unregulated maybe yeah right? unregulated would actually be a really fun way to uh or a really funny way to uh put that yeah it's um, been it's been up to gms to decide how all of that works and there's a lot yeah. of good stuff out there right like you know show favorite angry gm has a ton of like has probably has like hundred thousand cumulative words on how to handle like overland travel and whatnot if you go peruse his site um uh but uh but you know it, it's good that it's in the core book that way you don't have to go seeking the advice of of random strangers on the internet to to, yeah. to figure out how to run your game well. Um, uh, not not that any of his advice is invalid. Just you know, just as a point of example. 
Yeah. Anyway, we're pretty deep into this, uh, and I want to start talking about uh, specifics. All right. So the the first chapter is kind of all this introduction stuff, um, but the second chapter is ancestries and backgrounds. Uh, uh, ancestries. Real, real of... quick, before we get past the introduction stuff, something I did okay. want to uh, uh, go over real quick that I thought was a neat change from the playtest is um, is when you're assigning your ability scores, it's this, this, this plus system, which is very different from the first edition, I think is, is also a really good change. Um, essentially, you, you can roll if you want. They've got rules for it. But um, you start at 10 and everything, and then you kind of assign boosts as you go. And it's very easy to kind of get where you want. It doesn't have this weird increasing point system that you had in first edition. And additionally, if you wanted to, like, really specialize your character, you can take two flaws in addition in order to get a single bonus boost which um kind of really lets you solidify what I, what I always consider to be the uh the test for an ability score system is can you make a viable uh dwarf uh sorcerer essentially mm-hmm. um you know anything that that naturally has a detriment to uh to to a stat can you make it can you make a version of that ancestry um that has with a class that mainlines in that stat and i think that um the, the normal stuff plus this this extra flaw two flaws for one bonus option I think are really uh, really key in a in kind of making it feel like a, a really well thought out system where you can really kind of uh, your stats won't hold you back is I, I think the way I want to put this right yeah um, hard caps eighteen on 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 your static character creation stuff like that um, sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you we can get into the answer stuff I just wanted to go over that real quick for sure. Uh, so the ancestries are what they have. Well, so th- there's two pieces of this, right? The first is ancestries, and the second is uh, backgrounds, right? Which kind of collectively create the old system that we sort of had for like races in a way. Um, the ori- the one version of races were pretty powerful. There's a lot of stuff in there that was really like strong, obviously. Um, but it was also very static. You got all of this stuff at level one and maybe you interacted with your race a little bit down the line with like racial feats um, or like weapon proficiencies, any of those kinds of things. Um, but for the most part, you didn't really engage with it in the same way that you engage with your class where you're leveling up and you're engaging a lot. Like, okay, this is my, this is my class. This is my choice. The ancestries you engage with a lot over time because oh, at, in the same way that like, as you level up for classes, um, you unlock new class feats and class features and stuff like that. As you level up, you will also unlock new, uh, racial ancestral feats that you can uh, that you can take to make your kind of inline racial abilities sort of like more more powerful. They've also divvied up a lot of that power budget so that instead of kind of having this smattering of small, very circumstantial sort of things, um, you still have a lot of that stuff, but it is typically more powerful, it seems to me, and you get less of it, right? So because they have pulled some of this stuff off and put them and put that power into feats, you're now kind of looking at a world where you have to choose either or do i want you know the plus one skill or do i want the plus one feat as a human sort of thing right or like do i want like the the elven resistance to sleep or do i want the elven you know enhancement to perception if that makes sense yeah and Um, i i think a big part of this is the heritages feature um which kind of part, part of what happened i think in first edition is you had these kind of myriad um archetypes for 
uh, different races, right? Like you had the idea of the wood elf versus the high elf. And you could get like pieces of them together, but they were kind of like, uh, how do I want to put this? They were kind of like a la carte. So you kind mm-hmm. of could get pieces from both if you really wanted to min-max it. And they, they got away from that with the heritages because like each of those kind of really archetypal uh, versions of, of an ancestry are, are now in a heritage and they kind of indicate how you're supposed to go and you kind of, you can kind of divide out um, kind of some of those traits that way. And so um, those iconic traits that, you know, separately were iconic for the ancestry, but not for every member of the ancestry um, uh, are now on the heritage. You you really get the flavor. I think the the clearest one is on uh, the human because like there's the normal humans and there's half elves and half orcs as ancestry or as heritages. Um, Yeah. And they really set the flavor for. Uh, for yeah, I mean the baseline, the, like all of them get uh, something sort of baseline, right? So uh, a lot of the time this will be low light vision or dark vision or um, also hit points. Some, yeah, uh, and then and then right like base stats, right? Like dwarves are slow, elves are fast but fragile, kind of thing. And the ability boost and the ability flaws, you know, everything, everything kind of. Um, uh, in between uh, the so most of the individual racial traits that you're going to be finding are individual racial traits that you are going to be choosing yourself and that element of choice really makes a pretty big difference um, there are six ancestries in the core rule book um, the but they kind of represent the original seven plus one because half orcs and half elves have both been sort of folded into humans um they have been folded into humans in a way that i find kind of interesting because they do have their own unique racial feats and their own kind of like trait features um but you know for the purposes of the of the bookkeeping they are their own um they're they're uh, their own yeah they are they are humans um and uh and then they've added goblins on top of that for kind of like a quote-unquote sort of eighth race um yeah one of the things i I thought was neat about the half elves and the half orcs in particular there's a note where with like with gm permission you can take that heritage on another race as kind of uh as you know representing like maybe you instead of a three five years be called a half human which is a Mm. half elf raised by the elves um uh, which I think is, you know, again, very GM fiat but I think a neat a neat way because, you know, they are kind of fungible in that way um, that you can just kind of trans transpose them for, onto a different race and have the mechanics work out pretty uh, pretty well. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, you have any, given that the goblin is the newcomer, do you have any, do you have any specific thoughts about the goblin? So, I mean, the, I, I have a similar thought to the goblin that I have to a lot of these guys, uh, which is that um, some of these ancestral feats actually seem pretty strong, uh, which is kind of interesting and kind of crazy compared to, you know, what what I felt like was in Pathfinder 1, where you weren't getting a lot of power, you know, and oomph out of, out of uh, your character. But so, like, for instance, though uh, the goblins have a, a small line of feats, like very sneaky and very, very sneaky that increase the, your ability to move while taking the sneak action that I think is really powerful. Um, they have abilities later down the line to gain a speed which i think is pretty powerful i mean even one of the, these level one moves which is called goblin scuttle if an ally ends a move action adjacent to you you can use a reaction to take a step 
which is like to w- a step being a five foot step. That is insanely powerful. It seems to me. Um, and so I, I've been, I've been kind of impressed with the way that they have rebalanced uh, some of these, uh, some of these abilities that you get coming out of the ancestries that are going to be really impactful. And you're going to see kind of showing up all the time, right? This isn't even to address the different ancestries. Um, a lot of the, a lot of whom I think are pretty, pretty strong and pretty legitimate, right? Like the Char Hyde Goblin gets fire resistance at level one, which kind of comes out of, um, uh, which kind of comes way earlier than you would see that kind of thing in Pathfinder uh, first edition. They're also, you know, as a razor tooth goblin, you can get some piercing damage. Um, and so stuff like that, I think is, is really cool and interesting. I'm not really sure that I would ever play a goblin just because their RP is not really something that I'm incredibly interested in. Uh, but I, I've, it has, I, I am convinced that goblins are the, appropriate that are are an appropriate addition to the ancestries yeah no i i absolutely agree with that um i think part of this is you know the, the paizo goblins are like a paizo thing uh so they wanted to get that in there but um mm. it is it is neat to have another race there especially when it's kind of like a short-lived race i think it does lend itself to some like goofy antics sometimes but you know that can sometimes be fun um you know and it's you know it, it's not like it's not like if it was going to be a problem that that you know, I don't think the goblin makes a a a good player into a problem player. I think it just maybe exacerbates a problem player at the margins and can't design mm-hmm. for that. But uh, but yeah, um, I think I agree with you on on the uh, on on the kind of they definitely deserve to be here. I'm also really excited for kind of more options to come down the line. Um, one set of feats that's kind of common to every ancestry and that each gets a version of it is uh, you can basically get your ancestral weapons as uh, like you get basically you can get basically free some modulo some um, number of uh, some weird exceptions around like wizard and uh, other stuff but you get you get um, if you wanted to be like say a a uh, elven sorcerer who uses a bow you can take the ancestral uh, weaponry feats for that um gives you all the proficiencies in it and a way that stacks really smartly the level 13 feet like basically adds them to your proficiency pool so they scale with everything mm-hmm. uh you already uh have which i think is really cool um uh and uh this kind of uh, uh a thing to watch out for there um which i am excited for but also a little bit wary because this is kind of where a black creep lack of a better turn comes that um those feats will only get more powerful as more splat comes out and they add more kind of uh ancestry weapons um like you know as you as you get more dwarf weapons your dwarf ancestry weapon feat will be more powerful um uh but i do think that those are are cool feats uh as they go um yeah um did you did you have any other thoughts on ancestries that you wanted to to go over uh, you know, I don't off the top of my uh, off the top of my head, and uh, and I think a lot of the real meat behind some of this stuff is going to come out as soon as we start talking about uh, classes. But I do want to want to uh, touch on the backgrounds uh, as we sort of leave this section. 
history section is backgrounds and backgrounds kind of explain a little bit. It's like, you know, you're probably a young adult. What did you spend your time doing before hitting you know the the level one and when you're getting into fights with with kobolds and shit like that right um a lot of the time these are career choices there's a lot of like hunter or soldier or scholar kind of things right um but there are definitely a bunch of that are in here that are interesting and uh the thing that i find most interesting about these is one they are paired together with ability boosts, right? So it is part of how you increase your ability scores at level one. And two, they actually all give you a skill feat, which I think is a really neat, um, you know, like at level one, if you get detective, you get trained in the society and underworld lore skill, and then you also gain the streetwise skill feat, right? Um, And so that's a nice way to sort of balance out the skill lists uh, that people have been getting over over the years. Uh, and in Pathfinder 1, it's sort of the the new bumped-up version of, like, the, the traits that we used to have. Um, so I like these a lot. I think that they're very cool. I think there's a lot of room to sort of add new ones, but have each of them giving you two abilities uh, boosts, two skills to train in, and a skill feat seems like uh an appropriate power level that's going to make people sort of really invest in the right background for them i i i uh i absolutely agree especially since there's there's a lot of freedom there so like it's not like they're they're they lock you down too much it's not like you know everything so i believe for all of them one of the boosts is free um and so if you want to do something like um you know everyone's you know or like you you're all you were all in a mercenary company together, right? You could take everybody take the soldier background, and even mm-hmm. if you're like you know a wizard, that's you know you get a boost to your, I think it's like strength or con. You get a boost to your con, and then you can put the other one wherever you want. And it's not so uh, so limiting that uh, you, you're kind of locked out of your concept, um, mm-hmm. um, or rather you're you're locked out of the background because it would be too restricting to your concept. Um, uh, this is idea I think they kind of. Uh, took uh, at, le- at least inspiration from pretty heavily from 5e, but it's a thing that I like. Um, so uh, kudos to them for that. It's also a thing that they can add a lot more to just randomly. I'm, I am positive that every adventure path will come with a, a half dozen backgrounds that are campaign specific, uh, kind of yeah. like they had traits in, in 1e. So. No, definitely. Um, I, and I think that, that stuff is really neat and and really interesting and i also just think like good sort of rp flavor yeah Um, rp fodder too yeah exactly right like you know i i have certain characters in my head that have always sort of cropped up in games right like rubric drakenhof is a human ranger whose background is a hunter right and so you know i don't even know what the hunter background gives you but if i were to be creating rubric drakenhof i have that sort of framework already set up and ready to go and i think that there are a lot of people who have those kinds of uh interactions and um that's cool and that's exciting uh and i'm really interested to sort of see it get into uh when we get into uh playing some of these games but let's move on to classes because classes obviously have a lot to talk about and um are are the meat of people's kinds of you know expressions there are 12 classes the the 
original 11 plus they added the alchemist on top of it uh the alchemist is the very first class alphabetically what are your thoughts about these these guys so about the alchemist in particular um yeah. so uh i like the way they changed it from first edition the alchemist always kind of felt and the first edition always kind of felt like they were trying to squeeze the alchemist uh fantasy into the caster framework and here they've basically changed it so it's it feels more alchemisty if that makes sense um got a couple of like all, all these classes generally have uh, a couple of of i'm gonna like feet chains that kind of define like a, a type some a little bit more uh strongly bound than others but alchemist i think has some very strong ones that work really well there's the basically the bomber the healer and the mutagenist um which I think are some strong art, uh, strong kind of like themes to go with. Um, the only thing I think it's really missing is some strong poisoner stuff. There's a little bit in there, but I don't think it's fully fleshed out. But I fully expect that to come out down the line, either through um, an archetype or like some or uh, some sort of shared um, prestige archetype or something that, that like rogues can get into too. Um, mm-hmm. But I do really like that this kind of mechanic of you get X free gold per day to make bombs and, and other alchemical stuff and do with it what you with with it what you want um and then you can you basically specialize into one of those three areas like uh, yeah and i think the other piece that's really interesting about that uh that i find compelling um is the uh the way that it interfaces with the core alchemy mechanics later in the game like you are not creating items that only you, the alchemist, can create. You are creating items that anybody can create and that anybody has access to, but you are bumping up their efficiency and it is your ability to create them on the fly that sets you apart, right? Like the core the core mechanic for alchemists now is like the ability to craft, I think they call them like imbued ingredients, right? Which are a certain set limited per day. It is your kind of, your pool of quick concoctions that you can draft up on the fly but those concoctions are still like real alchemical items um rather than sort of a special alchemist only thing which is kind of what we saw in pathfinder first edition um i wasn't super sold on this in the play test and i'm not super sold on this here but i am kind of willing to give it the benefit of the doubt just because it looks you know, like, I think I think it'll play out with more efficiency than I guess I'm kind of giving it credit for uh, right now in the moment. Yeah, I, I think I think part of this is that um, the way 1E was set up, it kind of, like, consumables kind of had this weird space where you didn't want to uh, spend a lot of money on them. And so they didn't mm. get used a ton. They only got really used if they were loot. I think that's, that's some kind of systematic problems with the way that kind of wealth by level worked. Um, I think that's still kind of the case in a lot of ways, but um, having classes that can do them with, it, with effectively without that cost, I think, will um, make it more accessible. And I think once we all we all have like the the damage for uh, alchemist fire, lesser alchemist fire, normal alchemist fire in our heads, the same way we have kind of the damage that a magic missile does or that a fireball does in our heads, then it will feel a lot more natural. Um, I as part of this kind of thing, I do like the the, the kind of uh, splitting the difference between like a prepared caster and a spontaneous caster idea that they have here. Um, your your infused reagents can be split between your uh, your prepared ones, which um, they have. I think the benefit is is that they don't cost as many actions to create, and they might be a hair more powerful. 
can't remember mm. exactly. And then these kind of on the fly concoctions, where you can say, I need uh, this right now so I can use some of my daily preparations uh, kind of on the fly, which I, I think is uh, a, a neat tool to give them versus, say, uh, like, you know, like a, an arcane class that would spit the difference, right? Like, uh, um, uh, effectively, I, I was actually kind of expecting the wizard to be replaced by the arcanist in this edition, and it wasn't. I think kind of giving that role to the alchemist, like that, that kind of like flexibility role to the alchemist, I think plays a part in that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but Okay, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I, I get that. Um, yeah, it seems like the uh it's gonna it's gonna rely a lot on sort of execution so i don't want to judge it too harshly but i definitely find it kind of the most confusing and least intuitive of the the base classes and maybe that's just like a familiarity thing like I'm yeah much more familiar, I, I think it's gotta be with 3.5 than uh than uh some of these other rules but there is something to be said a little bit for like the dependence on these rules on the item rules later in the game does make it uh a little bit stranger i guess i would say yeah i, I think um, I, I think kind of as an overall old comment that maybe the organization of this book isn't the best like the how to play the game section starts on like page 440 i want to say um which 440 pages into the book all the way past yeah. all of this racing class or ancestry ancestry rather in class stuff um and i found myself while reading a lot of this ancestry stuff and some of the skill feats and the regular feats later on like why i don't understand exactly what's happening here why haven't i why hasn't why isn't the how to play section closer to the front of the book um, mm-hmm. but that's like a relatively minor thing right like if you want you just skip to how to play and then go back and read the ancestry and the class stuff but uh yeah but yeah um yeah but anyway uh, so those are my thoughts on the alchemist um i also have uh thoughts on the next uh class which is bard bard is historically my least favorite class i've always really hated uh the way that bard has worked over barbarian in. Oh, did I skip over Barbarian? Yes. I was so excited. I'm really excited to talk about Bard. All right, let's talk about Barbarian. Um, The Barbarian reminds me a lot. I I feel like Barbarian is pretty solid and has been figured out in a lot of ways. And so it is not a crazy, it didn't have as big of, or as tough a time kind of updating into second edition that some of the other classes, I guess I would say, uh, had part of this is that barbarian got a pretty big update coming from first or coming from dnd 3.5 to first edition pathfinder and i feel like we're sort of just like paying those dividends forward in a in a, in a they, they also got an unchanged version um yeah yeah uh so yeah it, it's probably got the most iteration and even this is this is even fairly significantly different from the play test um which is kind of funny because i feel like it's mostly been like bringing it back to center. Like all these iterations are like, you know, things that went a little bit further afield and then just got brought back to center. Like the play test had uh rage for three rounds and then off around. This just mm-hmm. doesn't work. You know, it just works like rage always has, or not quite like rage always has. It's all, it doesn't have the round mechanic, but kind of you rage for a while and then you're done for a little while. And that's basically it. Um, yeah. I've actually, I'm not sure about that change. Uh, I do understand that it was kind of, a big upheaval thing in the community. Uh, there was a lot of talk about this. There's a lot of talk about some other stuff too, right? Like Paladin stuff. But um, uh, I really kind of get from a game design perspective, why you want to do three, three on one off, just because like fights don't typically go 10 rounds deep, which is if, if you rage for a minute, 
right? That is 10 rounds deep. Um, and so the version of things where uh, the the barbarian rages for three rounds and then has to deal with their fatigue round in, you know, a lot of encounters, not every encounter, some are shorter, um, but uh, like 75% of encounters, right? I do feel like from a game design perspective, that decision makes a lot of sense and is probably kind of like correct. Um, but, uh, but they have changed it back to sort of the minute by minute um version of rage which you know i that th- it's what we've had for a long time so i guess i can't really complain about it, it right so, so it is different in the, in that like in the first edition it was you got a number of rounds of rage per day right um and it de- that <laughs> depended a lot on how long your adventuring day was as to how how much of a limit that really was um and now it's effectively unlimited which i think changes the the math essentially to assume that the barbarian's always raging, right? With mm-hmm. all the limitations and uh, and benefits that, that that gives you, I think it just kind of makes the math simpler. Right? You don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about like, you know, the average barbarian, which is technically like halfway between or maybe three quarters of the way to rage, rather than being all rage all the time. You just be like, it's always raging, um, except in these like two instances where he's not, and we take that as kind of like an opportunity cost, and so. We can just assume he's raging all the time and do the math that way. Um, yeah, yeah, that is definitely effective. Um, I think another part of this too, which I thought was interesting, because this is true for all the all the classes, is you don't really have any alignment restrictions anymore. With like the exception of the paladin, which got broken out into a thing that gives a a uh, a, a version of that class to each alignment anyway. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but like you know, barbarians used to be mandatory chaotic; they aren't anymore. And instead, they've been given essentially uh, paladin codes, but, you know, barbarian rather than uh, paladin, Um, which I thought was a really interesting addition, um, including the ability to opt out of uh, an anathema, which is what they're called, altogether. But I think they're really flavorful and they're really cool to to play into. Um, uh, Do do you have any thoughts on the anathemas in particular? Because I thought they were neat. I do like them, and I think that they're a really uh, cool uh a really great system the the other cool thing about anathemas that i that i appreciate is that it does more formalize that connection between rp narrative and story and the gameplay mechanics this is something that i've always been an advocate for um but seeing systems that encourage you to sort of interweave these uh these two aspects is something that has always appealed to me and so i'm really glad that they have introduced this not just here but in like uh, not just like in you know the obvious spot which is like champions right but also in druids have them um uh clerics have them right like there but there's a bunch of other spots where they crop up and i think that that's neat yeah um and i think along with that um this is not something that's in this book but it's something i saw on the forums um is they have explicitly not balanced any of the powers against the theoretical cost of having one of these kind of uh, anathema type drawbacks, which mm. um, you know might be might be a little bit weird to play in in some niche cases, but I think it's better in the long run. I think we had a, this big problem in one where um, paladins in particular had a lot of power given to them because they were supposed to be so restricted by their paladin code, and that wasn't a real restriction, um, right? And so I think kind of knowing that they're ba- they're not balanced to their uh, restrictions is, is good to know and, and uh, uh, I think good for the health of the game overall. 
Um, but on to the specific uh, kind of uh, rages, right? You've got, you've got Bestial, you've got Draconic, you've got uh, Fury, which is kind of this, like whatever. It, it is the, the generic version. There's uh, Giant, which gives you some of those, those uh, Jotun, uh, Titan Mauler stuff, funny type things. Mm-hmm. Um, you think, what do you think of the ones that exist in 2? Do you think that uh, they're missing anything in particular that you'd like to see in the future? No, I love these, and I think that they're a really great uh, new way uh, to structure the the rage and sort of the flavor of the barbarian ability. Um, even, even some of the ones that I think of, like, they actually went deeper than I expected, right? Like, they include the spirit instinct. Oh, right, I forgot um, about that one, yeah. Yeah, which is, you know, is uh, it, it's about dealing positive and negative energy damage, right? And even, like, the Fury Instinct, which is just, like, the very, like, basic one, I think is very good and very powerful. Um, and it's sort of neat to have some of these, uh, to have some of these baselines. But I think it helps flavor the Barbarian kind of in, in a certain subset of ways. It's almost like the Blood Rager kind of got, like, that flavor yeah. with the different, with the different bloodlines. So I think they're tapping into that kind of thing. And, um... And it is the nice sort of iteration on archetypes that we have seen coming out of Barbarians in 1E uh, is folded into the class uh, directly. And we will be seeing a lot of like new instincts coming out in the future that I'm sure we'll all like get really hyped for. Yeah, I'm, I, am, I am near positive at some point there will be like an aberrant version and like a demonic yeah, version yeah. and, you know, yeah, probably like some... some underwater one because there's always an underwater oh. one um yeah overall i really like the barbarian i think the barbarian got some really great changes um and it is uh it's probably one of my favorite like i like if i'm thinking about classes that i want to play moving into second edition barbarian is pretty close to the top of the list yeah um so i i, I think i agree with you um this is also an opportunity to talk about one of the kind of like it's a small change but it affects the system in large ways and uh um if you notice Barbarian has an option to get attack of opportunity attack of opportunity at level six. The only character that gets it at level one right now is uh, the fighter, um, mm-hmm. and this kind of represents a big shift away from money where everybody got attacks of opportunity, um, basically as the default. And this kind of means that they're that um, at least to my mind, I think one of the positive effects is that the combat grid should be less locked up into kind of static positions, more free to move. You don't have to yeah. worry about like um, procking AOOs all the time. Um, do you have do you have any any further thoughts on the AOO change? Uh, I love the AOO change. I think it's going to make combat a lot more dynamic. Um, something that is obvious to most people that end up playing uh, for you know a certain amount of time is uh, the the fact that everybody gets AOOs means that combat will very quickly kind of get like bogged down, especially for melee people. There's not a lot of moving around and stuff because you're going to be triggering AOOs. If you do that, now you have the option to kind of like run in, hit a guy, run out, hit another guy, run to a third guy without too much trouble. And whether or not your opponent has AOOs to lock you down is a, is like a real question that kind of like needs to be answered. Um, so I don't yeah. know. I like that. I like that quite a bit. I also, I also do. Um, I think that I, I think part of the, 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 the thing I'm going to watch out for is I think there might be a temptation to kind of give a lot of creatures AOOs in the bestiary. Um, and as long as they don't do that, I think, I think we'll be good. I think that the days of the conga line of death will be relatively long gone. I think it's good. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, all right. Um, move, uh, also, there are so many more things to do on a react with your reaction that taking an AOO isn't the biggest thing, which I think also contributes to that. Um, but we're running on time, so maybe we should pick it up and move on to Bard because you want to talk about Bard and I interrupt. Yes, yeah, so the thing I want to talk about Bard is that they fixed this fucking class and I like it a lot now. Uh, the, big <laughs> thing, the big thing that they did with Bard that I appreciate is they folded a lot of the kind of like extraneous features um, that the old Bard had into its spell list and it is now a ninth level caster in the same way that a cleric and a wizard are ninth level casters but for a new brand of spells which are the occult spells and i love this change i think it's great um and i think it is the perfect way to sort of like solve a lot of the issues uh that i previously had with bard i think bard will still kind of hit that kind of like jack of all trades um notion but like there will be a lot less like oh i i, I forgot inspire courage plus two you know like all of these like passive buffs that nobody remembers and just like everything is just like flat buffs to your party and that's the that's the utility that you bring kind of thing i feel like all of that has kind of been like done away with and it's a lot more kind of like targeted and specific because it's all rolled into your spells essentially um yeah so. I, I think the thing to highlight there is this is probably the poster child for the new focus system which is essentially you get um, uh, regen a regenerating pool of things that let you cast special spells. Bards get cantrips, which don't have to spend the points. Uh, focus cantrips, which is where your your inspire uh, courage comes from. But um, uh, these kind of a built like these kind of custom tuned abilities are usually tied to like a feature from your class, right? Like uh, for sorcerers, it's the bloodline. For wizards, it's your arcane school. Um, they give you uh, kind of the ability to spend a point and do a cool effect, and you can regenerate them with 10 minutes of pause between uh, combat. And so I think that's the, and that, that's a lot of what you were, you were talking about, which is cool. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing to point out is uh, kind of the, a lot of the, as you put it, like kind of miscellaneous bullshit um, is, in, and they've done this for a, couple, for a couple other classes, I would say most notably the Druid, is that they've divided a lot of kind of those disparate aspects into uh schools for the for the for the bard and different things for, for other classes that but you kind of if you liked the bardic knowledge you pick i think it's the polymath mute and if you really like singing a lot you take the maestro muse right mm. um and so and there are abilities to get the there are ways to get the cross um kind of uh muse abilities but uh kind of having them sectioned off initially i think is a good way to kind of keep uh keep these classes from becoming kind of like oh and i have these seven features of which i use two really most of the time and i'm generally taking mm -hmm. an archetype to pair off the, the the ones i don't like um i think this is a good way to, to kind of uh keep all everything from the first class without giving it to every version of that uh, uh, every instance of that class if that makes sense yeah um i don't have anything um, specifically to say about the bard otherwise unless you Nope, nope, nope. That's it. Bard has increased uh, dramatically in my uh, in my estimation. Uh, the next the next class after that is Champion, which, as we said, is kind of like the new Paladin class. We're not going to spend a ton of time because we've been kind of like touching on it. But the cool thing that Champion has is like in the same way that a uh, in a barbarian will choose like the animal instinct or. Uh, like the giant slayer instinct or whatever uh, the champion will choose from different alignment based instincts uh, or sorry, different alignment based kind of specializations. Uh, so there are three of them in the core 
rulebook. Uh, all of them are for the good alignment, and they have said that other ones will kind of come in the future. Uh, this is for Paladin, which is lawful good, Redeemer, which is neutral good, and Liberator, which is chaotic good. These all have different sort of like tenants and codes that kind of stack on top of one another, and I found that to be kind of like interesting and fascinating. But the gameplay to me... Um, you know, I'm not incredibly hype about it. Uh, I wonder if Paladin will attract as many people as the first version, uh, the first edition version of Paladin did, just because it seems like there is less sort of raw power in the Paladin's abilities. Like, you know, the the way that they... Their, their smite evil is gone and uh, replaced by different other kinds of, like, reactions that you can make. And and those reactions are cool, but they're much more defensive in mind. So um, the Paladin much more clearly slots into kind of like a tank slot, uh, but is less of a sort of, right, like, DPS. Oh, I, I, you know, smite evil on the bad guy and do 80 bazillion damage. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, um, there's a little bit of that, but I think you're right. This is definitely meant to be the high defensive class. It's the only class that gets the legendary proficiency in armor um i think it's cool i think it's a cool niche for it the only thing i worry a little bit about is making kind of the armor master class so specifically tied to like what is very clearly a a a very kind of a very heavily themed class right like the armored warrior is never going to be as good as kind of like the religious champion which is a little bit weird um but they can probably fix that down the line with more material it's just yeah, at the moment it's it's a little bit limiting, especially for so. This is a dumb argument from the forums, but um, uh, how to get like basically proficiencies on classes where you don't get them natively is kind of tough to do in this edition, especially at the mm-hmm. at the rate at which you get them. Um, which is mostly fine. Um, like you can multi into fighter to get certain weapon which is you know not the greatest maybe, but it's okay. The bigger problem, I, I think, the, the shining example of the problem rather is the champion. In order to get like good proficiencies with armor that you're not proficient with, you have to multi into champion, which doesn't fit everybody's kind of RP. Uh, you know, you, like the R- RP for the character if you wanted to take it for mm-hmm. a mechanical part. That, that, that's again not the end of the world, just a little bit. But uh, if you don't have anything else, we need to we need to pick pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the new cleric has two specializations. One of them is the war priest, which is, I would say the more traditional version of the cleric, uh, specifically because it has the, um, it has like the armor proficiencies and you're kind of wading into combat a lot more. Uh, and then the other version is the cloistered cleric, which I'm kind of surprised is not a baseline D and D thing because it is kind of like a baseline fantasy thing. Yeah. Um, which the is, cloistered cleric is almost is like is like a priest, right? It is light armor, casting a lot of you know like holy healing spells and stuff like that. Um, so, it's basically a divine wizard. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is which is not a thing that uh, we really had before. I, I agree with you. It's, it's weird that it, it took this long to kind of really get into the game as a core concept. Just I think it was one of those things where like if you wanted to do that. Money, you just didn't put on heavy armor if you were a cleric, and mm-hmm. there you have it. It's like, well, then I'm not using this thing that was power budgeted to me, so I might as you know. Um, so I think this is actually uh, this is actually pretty cool. Um, I think I think it's a good change. Um, still, I, I uh, still lets you have all that flavor if you, if you want it. Um, maybe the divine champion eats the uh, not the divine 
whatever the the war priest eats the paladin's lunch a little or the champion's lunch a little bit but i don't know i don't think it's a big deal and i'm sure that kind of these like edge boring things will will come as more splat comes out um, yeah, definitely. I think that cleric got a real upgrade, uh, especially because the first edition cleric was so basic and tough to iterate on. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but so, otherwise, I'm not incredibly excited for it. Something that they pointed out at the design philosophy of Pathfinder 2E panel at Gen Con was that classes like wizard and cleric didn't get good archetypes in 1E because so much of the power was just kind of baked into um the, the, the class features couldn't really mm-hmm. change. Um, and so having having kind of like that portioned out in a way that you can add, easily add archetypes, I think, is, is positive overall. Um, yeah. Moving on, the druid. Um, the big thing about the druid is that um, like the seven things that a druid can do, which are like, you know, nature spellcaster, uh, shapeshift, animal companion, and uh, like plants – they're all their own separate uh, circles, I think they're called now. Uh, or orders. They're called orders. Circles is 5e. Mm. Um, they're called circles. Um, you can cross circles if you wanted to get some of that other stuff. Um, but if you wanted to be the druid that always did the shapeshifty stuff and didn't really care about the spellcasting, you can play that druid. Um, if you wanted to be the druid that was like the stormlord and didn't really do a lot of the animal companion stuff, you can be that druid. Um, if you want to be the plant druid, you can be that druid, which I think is a, a really cool way to do things, a really uh, really awesome way to do it. Um, your thoughts? Yep. Yeah, they have successfully divvied up the druid into, I would say, the appropriate kind of uh, archetypal slots, and it is less doing everything, which is good. I, I, I heartily approve. Druid is also near the top of my list of classes that I want to play in uh in 2e uh next up after after druid we have the fighter um fighters are kind of interesting because the the new edition of class feats makes them much more uh like much more versatile but there is definitely a lot to love inside of the fighter not the least of which is the legendary their legendary ability to go um deep on weapon training um and also the sheer number of just like actions that they can take that i thought were really like cool and neat a lot of old feats have been dropped down into fighter feats for instance power attack point blank shot um reactive or i'm sorry uh uh sudden charge stuff like this are stuff that we saw in pathfinder 1e but is now kind of like squarely in the fighters uh the fighters domain with a little bit of bleed into the other into the other kind of classes like ranger and paladin uh we talked obviously about the attacks of opportunity as a good example of this but it seems like you can build your fighter really differently depending on your feat selection they still get a buttload of feats compared to almost everybody else in the core rule book so i give the fighter two thumbs up i think it's a neat class and they changed it to make it uh they or they didn't change it that much and it's still it's still pretty good, cool yeah um they get um you know, there's a couple of like clear feet chains in here which are like basically two weapon one weapon open hand a two-handed weapon sword and board and like uh i think there's a ranged one in here too um but you can mix and match them if you wanted to theoretically, and also they get essentially um, the uh, the brawler feature from One E, which is uh, combat flexibility. Um, yep. 
which I think is uh is is neat. They don't get it to level nine, but I still think that's fine. I may also get one of the higher perception scores of the uh of the classes, um, mm-hmm. um, which I think is neat. Um, that's another thing that changed. I know this is random and kind of in the middle of it, but uh, that's another big change. Everybody has their own dedicated perception score since that was such a core skill, which I think is a very mm-hmm. neat change. Um, yeah, definitely. I think uh, it is also a really great change uh, that I'm excited for. Uh, next on the list is Monk. Monk has absorbed the different stance feet chains from 1E to be kind of core to its identity. Um, a lot of the level 1 feats are just the different stances, right? Like Dragon Stance, Crane Stance, that sort of thing. Um, I actually think this is a really great direction to take the Monk and has made me a lot more interested in playing Monk. I think they get a pretty big boost out of uh out of this kind of you know not just that you have the stances but you're also kind of encouraged to pick up multiple and swap between them i feel like um and the the because the stances all have so essentially what the the stances do is they give your your fist weapons kind of like different types um so for instance if you have crane wing you get the fragile finesse uh traits and if you're the dragon tail you get the backswing uh trait and so like not all of those traits are going to be applicable at all times and i think some of them are going to make you want to kind of say like okay i am going to get both the dragon stance and you know like the mountain stance or something and kind of swap between them as necessary uh which i think is pretty neat and pretty interesting yeah um they also rolled in kind of the uh, the key stuff that kind of like floated around running in weird ways that um, didn't quite mesh closely. And so that's another kind of path that a monk can take. It's not as well kind of uh, sectioned off as some of the other classes, but I think it's neat. Um, they're probably the prime example. I think they might be the only, but they are the, the kind of premier example of a, um, them and the champions are a prime example of uh, may, uh, uh, how do I want to put this? Martial classes that have access to a focus pool and can do spell-like things every day. Which yeah. I think is cool. Um, uh, I like monks a lot. They're also on the top of my list of things that I want to play in... Uh, things I want to play in 2nd Edition. Uh, next after that is the Ranger. Uh, I do... Ranger was one of my favorite classes in 1st Edition, uh, but I do think that they made pretty strong changes that I would... Um, I don't want to say like recommend, but that I, that I would say are uh, good changes overall. They've removed favorite enemies and kind of boiled everything into a hunt prey feature where you are designating individual targets as like who you are kind of like going after in exploration mode that also has, you know, like that also has benefits and uh, in, in encounter mode and stuff like that. Um, they get the same sort of, right, you can go two-up and fighting, you can go archery, um, and you can go uh, the animal companion as sort of your different routes when it comes to the ranger. So there's not a lot that has changed there. But yeah, getting rid of favorite enemies and sort of letting you uh, opt into some of those features that were otherwise kind of holding the ranger back, I think has made a really big difference for the better. Yeah, um, I also like how kind of a lot of it seems to, the way it shapes out is kind of like, uh, a, a survivalist version of the fighter almost in a lot of ways, which I think is neat. Like, um, the big one is they it basically gets an AOO ability, but it's a free action, but it's only mm. against your hunted targets. You can do as many as you want against the one dude. Uh, it's called Disrupt Prey, but not against uh, anybody else, which I think is kind of a neat way to kind of highlight 
how these how, how the system how, how the chassis of the system kind yep. of works out yeah um, and i and i think that the fur like that kind of single target hunter kind of uh aesthetic um that is really appropriate and really cool yeah absolutely uh, okay. uh so after that we have the rogue uh the rogue is has been i mean i feel like they've been changed a lot uh the flavor is very similar in terms of like you know being an underhanded kind of like fighter uh like martial character but the big thing that makes the rogue crazy are their skills they have an insane number of skills compared to the other classes and they go a lot deeper on those skills than the other classes do um because every other level they get a skill feat. So I feel like that is the primary thing that sets the rogue apart. And interestingly enough, the three different, like they have, they have the ruffian, the scoundrel and the thief, um, which are not super skill focused or skill heavy. Ruffian is just kind of like, you know, you're an intimidating thug. Scoundrel is being fast talking bluffs and feints and thief is, you know, being dexterous and, and dexterous and sneaky. They still have sneak attack, but sneak attack is much less powerful than it originally was. Um, it, it is probably the most fiddly mechanic I've seen so far in the edition, which I'm not super crazy about, but it seems like they really wanted to make sure that it didn't kind of get out of hand, right? Like great sword yeah. rogue can't happen. Um, like there's like a straight up die size limitation on how uh, on uh, on weapons that can be used with sneak attack which mm-hmm. i think is weird but ultimately probably necessary they have, they have also companies. uh clarified like sneak attack is precision damage and precision damage pops up more often i guess you'd say now um so there's a lot of you know there's a lot of stuff uh in in the new rogue uh that bleeds across the different the different lines and it is less like you know it used to be sneak attack damage was a very specific thing that got referenced all the time like oh this creature is immune to sneak attack damage now that's just precision damage and a bunch of different classes get precision damage um from different sources yeah um but i don't know if there's a lot else to say yeah i mean maybe the rogue is interesting i'm not incredibly jazzed about it but uh you know, uh, I feel like the flavor is there at least, and they went for something cool, which I like. Um, so, you know, it's kind of yep. to be determined uh, from me. The I, sorcerer. I, I, oh, I was oh, going to say, to close out the rogue, I was going to say, if you're going to play a rogue, you're going to be pretty much playing a rogue, and you're not going to get any of this weird kind of stuff that you could with, like, the more extreme builds and one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the sorcerer is different and sort of interesting, but I also it also has me scratching my head a bit. Um, it is still like an innate caster, and you're getting bloodlines, but bloodlines don't just give you like specific powers; uh, they also give you access to different spell lists entirely, right? Like, so if you have the Fey bloodline, all of a sudden you're pulling from the primal spell list, which is the druid spell list. If you have the hag bloodline, all of a sudden you're pulling from the occult spell list, which is the bard spell list. Um, you still do get arcane uh, spells through their own, you know, like through their own bloodlines, but now sorcerer is kind of like this nexus point between the different nine level casters um i also find that the bloodlines are less powerful and unique and interesting uh than they were in first edition so i kind of feel like the sorcerer got a downgrade uh but maybe you can kind of make up for it with that flexibility who knows 
Yeah, I, I, I think I think part of it is that um, they wanted to pull some of the power off of the bloodline. Yeah, um, I think so too. Because it was really a, a core part of that c- class, um, and you can also like not use the bloodlines very much at all if you don't want to, which I think mm-hmm. is neat if you wanted to go full casters on stuff or like pick up a, a multi class. Um, uh, I think otherwise, you know. It's it's fine. What's surprising to me is that they've announced the Oracle for the Advanced Players Guide, which I kind of assume that the Divine Sorcerer is just going to eat all of the Oracle, but I guess not. So we'll see how that goes. I'm kind of interested to see how, how they differentiate the two. Uh, yeah, something else I want to highlight here, uh, which I think is really good, is that they have also worked to diversify the healing classes. Um, it used to sort of be that, like, you know, clerics were the big bad mega healers then you also sort of had like witches had some healing druids had some healing right um you know bards had some healing sort of thing uh now it feels like clerics um druids alchemists have a a healing specialization called like chirurgian i don't know how to pronounce that um and sorcerers who can get the angelic bloodline which gives them you know a bunch of free healing stuff uh there there's a lot more parity between your healers and so there's less kind of uh need to pull a different heal or to pull in a cleric to all of your parties plus there's uh there's skill-based healing so so there's even kind of like the wild card option if you want yeah so if you want to do a lot of uh uh healing with the medicine skill you absolutely can do that um and then uh i guess our last class then is wizard uh which is uh it's 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 a wizard <laughs> um i don't know i don't really feel like i have a lot to say about it they work kind of like they always have which i always found the uh the kind of the the prepared spellcasting to be a little bit limiting but it is what it is um i think the addition of the focus pools will give them a lot more kind of uh mm. expandable power you know kind of uh a power to just kind of like uh, mess around with things, experiment with things. Um, I think kind of the the new the new system which lets you heighten spells, which is like also similar to five e, um, is good. Um, in letting you kind of like keep some of the diversity of your spell list, um, by preparing it in different level of slots, um, and like you know like not everything falls off, but also not everything scales wackily, right? Like it's not like you're spending level one slots. As, to, to cast like you know 12 missile magic missiles um and then they just kind of like fall off at a point so i think that's neat um i think making the schools a little bit more central to their identity is a neat choice mm-hmm. um uh but uh honestly i'm not super hyped about the wizard not because i think they're bad but just because they're kind of the same as they always were at least in my mind do you, do you feel the same way uh so the thing that i'm interested most in the wizard is sort of these like they, they okay, so they have um, an arcane thesis, um, which are different ways that you can sort of change around your spells. One of them is meta magic experimentation. Uh, another one is spell substitution. Another one is spell blending. I actually really like spell blending. It's a very cool feature that allows you to sacrifice two low level spells to get one higher level spot to the to get like one higher level spell slot. So like imagine you're a level six caster or something like that, and you tank, you know. A level two spell and a level one spell to get another level three spell um that kind of stuff is really interesting and really cool but uh but otherwise i mostly agree with you uh, i don't think that it's quite as i mean i i don't know uh i am i am probably marginally ahead on the sorcerer compared to uh the 
or I'm sorry, marginally ahead on the wizard compared to the sorcerer. Uh, but I also sort of agree that it's basically the same sort of thing. And I don't feel like they necessarily accomplished their goal of pulling power out of the just like raw spell list that these guys got um, and, and put it back into kind of the class itself. I will note that there are a couple of uh, uh, cool... Um, class feats that i think are really neat uh, they get a lot of you know the meta magic class feats are hit by a lot of the hit by a lot of the casters um so maybe you know maybe there's some potential there um yeah yeah no i, I definitely think they will continue to be wizards which i think is fine it's just i'm looking for the hot the, the new hotness i don't think the wizard necessarily slots into that, that yeah yeah for sure um but uh, that's all of the uh, the classes and the ancestry stuff. Uh, we've gone over our normal hour, but uh, that's fine. We I don't feel like we can shorten our, our this week session. So uh, what, sure. did you, what did you do this week? Uh, the most interesting thing I've been doing this week is playing Hearthstone. Uh, the new expansion dropped, uh, and it has obviously shook shaken up the meta. the The interesting thing about when a new Hearthstone expansion drops is universally what ends up happening is old decks that get new good stuff but like don't really change their game plan at all um quickly kind of like rise to the top the example here is that control warrior is currently sitting at a 57 percent win rate um because control warrior picked up just a few small items that i kind of subbed in a new package to give you sort of that late game like powerful oomph um but the interesting thing is that that win rate actually was about 59% like two days ago. So I think it's actually kind of uh, coming down to size. The two other decks that are in tier one of the new Hearthstone expansion are Murloc Paladin and Highlander Hunter, which are really interesting inclusions. Um, the Highlander decks have come back because of the new card that we talked about, Zephyrus, and uh, also the different legendaries for a couple of the classes require the Highlander mechanic. So, for instance, Bran, the new version of Bran Bronzebeard, requires the Highlander mechanic, and if you meet it, he is a 7-mana 2-4 that summons King Crush and 8-8 eight, 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 eight with charge, which has turned out to be a really powerful finisher. Uh, but the thing that's interesting about Highlander Hunter being so successful, it's sitting at about a 56% win rate, um, is that it signals that there is a lot of power, just raw power in Hunter at the moment. Uh, when you have to make a singleton deck, you are cutting the duplicates means a lot of the time you are cutting down on like the raw power level of your deck. And so you're having to say like, okay, well, I mean, I would love to run two, you know, like Eagle horn bows, but I can't. So I have to make a decision. So I'm going to play one of, of a weapon that is similar to Eagle horn bow, but worse, but the success of Highlander hunter kind of signals that there's just a lot of really high caliber, powerful cards. And that even with the variance of playing a singleton deck where you can't just kind of, you know, you can't rely on getting uh, consistency in your, uh, in your plays, you still are able to kind of tempo people out. It plays a lot like a mid range deck that kind of wins around turn seven, eight, nine, um, and I kind of expect it to sort of be one of the better decks in the expansion, to be honest with you. Um, also of note is that tier two is full of a lot of different, uh, a lot of different decks that are doing a lot of new things. Uh, most of the big meta stuff that was meta last expansion besides control warrior has fallen into this tier two 
uh, this tier two level. And a lot of them have, uh, and a lot of new decks have kind of popped up out of nowhere, right? Like Agro Warriors sitting at a 54% win rate, which has kind of come out of left field, um, as well as a resurgence of a control mage archetype at 55%. So the new meta is interesting. It's got a lot of neat stuff going on. Uh, and that is the Hearthstone that I have been playing this week. Uh, what have you been up to? Um, so, uh, besides, besides League, uh, I hit the end credits for the Final Fantasy A Realm Reborn, like the, the base game, which is interesting. Uh, according to Friend of the Cast, Nick, I've got about five more end, end credits to hit before I'm up to current content. Um, uh, but that was a neat journey. Very cheesy, but, you know, it's fun. Um, uh, more interestingly, I played the first level of Doom 2016, finally got around to that. It's a very neat game. I look forward to playing more of it, kind of very hyperactive and hyperkinetic, unlike most, uh, shooters from the current era, so, uh, that's neat. Um, Doom Eternal comes out in November, so maybe I'll be on board for that. Um, but, uh, not a ton to talk about there, um. The single biggest thing I probably did this week in terms of what we can talk about here is I saw Crawl, uh, the Sam Raimi horror movie. Have oh, yeah, I was meaning to see that, yeah. Um, it is uh, interesting in that it's it's a horror movie, and, you know, it's got this typical Sam Raimi kind of exaggeration on reality. But mm-hmm. um, there's nothing supernatural about it, right? Like, it's a hurricane and some alligators, and there's just being a hurricane and alligators. Um and uh, that it's 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 classic horror, but without without any supernatural element, which I think is really cool. Um, uh, it's uh, like I said, sometimes it strains belief in reality. Um, you know, like the the croc the, the alligators rather are very aggressive, and uh, they do some pretty fantastic kills, um, both in kind of the they're great and the kind of in the realm of fantasy. But uh, 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 other than uh, that i think it's a pretty solid movie um so something i think that you will find hilarious is like mm-hmm. all the character development happens in like three minutes at like almost exactly the one hour mark um in a one and a half hour movie which is which is it's nice that this you know not every movie needs to be three hours long but uh it's literally we find out that uh you know wait, the, it, the the premise is that this daughter is going to go find her dad who is caught in the hurricane or like hasn't evacuated for whatever reason you find out he basically stuck in the basement because the gator is hunting him um mm-hmm. uh and uh uh like an hour in they're kind of like trapped and uh and basically he, he's like you're a winner and you never give up and he's like like you gave up on mom he's like we we didn't give up and it's just like this it's like three minutes all the character development just told to you right off right like she blames herself for her parents divorce he's like it's not your fault and that's like the entirety of it and it's fucking hilarious because it doesn't matter because it's a movie about like alligators and surviving a hurricane but like it, it i just found it so hilarious that it was just so condensed into this one moment um uh and you know so if, if you're looking for deep story and character development this is not the movie for you if you're looking for um a, a horror movie about alligators it is <laughs> so i uh, recommend it for that um, okay, very cool. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, interestingly enough, talking about deep story and character development, I have been watching the Fast and the Furious movies. And I almost want to say that we should do a full cast on the oeuvre 
of these Fast and Furious movies because they are fucking fascinating to me. Would you believe me if I told you that the Fast and the Furious movies did the Avengers before the Avengers? Because they did. And I know that sounds crazy. And it is kind of crazy. And it's not quite as true as, like, the, you know, the headline makes it sound because they did it, like, one year before the Avengers came out. Um, but I am just loving the Fast and the Furious movies. I think the, um, the Fast and the Furious movies are... The, kind of the secret to the zeitgeist in a way because it is so strange to see a set of movies that is simultaneously insanely flippant with its lore and also extremely dedicated to it there are content be, because i've been watching them all back to back right um there are all of these little things that i'm like oh my god that's a callback to the first one. Oh my god that's a callback to the second one Oh my God, like, you know, like, I can't believe they made this reference. I can't believe this person showed up for like a fucking cameo or whatever. And it suggests that there's this like secret cadre of people who are insanely obsessed with Fast and the Furious like lore and like as these movies are coming out and in 2013, they're like, oh my God, that's the guy from the first one. But the first one came out 12 years ago. And I'm like, who... Who is that for? Who's the person that gets that reference? I've it is insane. It is absolutely insane. Um, but I am I am addicted. And I understand why people love these movies now, especially like film geek people. That was all that was one of the things that was always so weird to me about the Fast and the Furious movies, is that um is that film nerds also went nuts for these movies and every time a new one came out they were getting recommendations and i was like how come you know like and these are the same people who are shitting on movies like batman vs superman for its like continuity and world building um or like the dark universe stuff or whatever i'm like how where are the fast and the furious movies going right where these ones are going wrong and i and i don't know the answer to that i'm not done yet i still have uh seven eight and Hobbs and shaw to do but boy am i really looking forward um to this ride i guess uh ride or die as they say in the fast and the furious movies yes rachel ride or die she's dying (laughs) (laughs) because they say that all the time and in in situations that just doesn't make sense to be honest with you it's like (laughs) it's just like saying like I don't know. I, I guess it's like saying YOLO or like, you know, like carpe diem or something, which is, which is just like fucking go hard or go home. Yeah. But like, they just say it at these extremely weird times. Like somebody will be like, take care of Tom. And Tom will be like, ride or die. And you're just like, what the fuck? What does that mean in this scenario? I don't understand. Also, the crazy thing about the Fast and the Furious movies when you're watching them back to back to back is how these guys basically became fucking superheroes and their superpower is driving cars, which is just like the weirdest thing. Like the very first movie is like, it's like a point break movie, right? There is a group of street racers that the police suspect are performing these kind of like high stakes highway robberies of like trucks and they're just like robbing dvd players right but they rob enough dvd players that that's like you know half a million dollars or whatever and the and the lapd is like we gotta we gotta find them out so they send one of their guys undercover this is paul walker and and like and that's it that's the stakes right half a million i I will point out that the 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 big race in 
the Fast and Furious one is called Race Wars, which is fucking hilarious. By the way, Race Wars comes back <laughs> in Fast and the Furious 7. It's like a whole extended thing. Oh my god. I want to sit here, honestly. I think the I think the way we might want to do this as a cast is if I sit down and just explain the plot of the Fast and the Furious movies to you because you will not fucking believe that that i am telling the truth you will be like what it's anyway um now, now you've got me intrigued now, now i gotta i gotta catch up yeah so that so that is the first one so that is fast and furious one fast and the furious six they are literally stopping an international criminal from putting together like a secret computer super weapon and it's like how is the group of street razors from Los Angeles the only group of people that can take like this guy? He's like ex Mossad, ex SAS, fucking super soldier guy, right? Like down. Ah, it's crazy. It's nuts. Um, oh my god, these movies are doing something incredible to me, Bango, and I don't know. Uh, I don't know what else to say about it. Um, another thing that I wanted to bring up: Have we talked about Strangest Things season three on the cast? I don't think so. You might have talked about it before, but I, I haven't seen anything past season. Yeah, so I so I watched Stranger Things uh, season three. I just want to give it a, like a small, my two cents, I guess I'd say. Um, I was not a huge fan of Stranger Things season two. There are a couple of duds in the middle there. Um, it is overall good, but nowhere near as like exemplary as the first Stranger Things was. That just was like you know latched onto your attention and didn't let go strangest things season three is secretly kind of awesome um but also kind of sucky it is it is a little bit more of an ensemble piece um and there's a bunch of like cool shit that happens um and the different plot lines kind of running throughout the show and tying in together and like watching all of that kind of happen uh was very fun and very interesting uh but overall once again they have failed to kind of recapture the magic i guess of stranger things season uh of stranger things season one have you been watching any like tv recently uh not really no just been playing playing league of legends because you got me back into this you sick bastard Fair enough. I'm, I'm sorry well, well tell me about you do you have any updated thoughts on league of legends like you've been playing you played a couple of games of, of gangplank earlier today yeah uh, no i'm 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 as as you can as you know, I've been getting back into my I you know play whatever the fuck I want kind of groove, which is you know I'm, I'm starting to experiment again, which is nice, but also kind of it's more disappointing than it was, just because it it, it doesn't work nearly as well as it used to. But you know that them them's the shakes. Still enjoying it so far. I think the yeah real- th- yeah this is kind of what. Uh... I guess I am reminded of when we were initially talking about coming back to the game. And it feels like there are more sort of off meta things that are like meta, if that makes sense. Right. Like assassin Pike in the bottom lane is probably the best example of this. Like he's a support, but he's also an assassin. And because it's intended, I don't think there's the same like thrill as like playing AP Tristana or something. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, I think the the real test of my uh, of, of my resolve will be when uh, whenever we decide to to play rank, if we ever do, um, th- th- that'll be when I when I when I know if uh, if I'm back in or if I'm not, because uh, because I think that's the, the the real but my real testing point that, that that's where the rubber meets the road and that's where like you know if it goes poorly I start being upset and then I stop having fun playing League of Legends. 
Yeah, I mean, I've definitely had some bad games on League of Legends, but something that I have uh, sort of recognized, it feels like, over time, is that um, the more, the better I do, the more the the more fun I have. Like, even in our game, like, okay, uh, just like looking at our match history, we lost four games in a row today, uh, which, yikes. Uh, but in all of them, I did pretty good, and so I don't feel particularly tilted about that, which is, you know... The, the, which is kind of like what I what I guess I'm uh, uh, looking for. Um, I do kind of find that interesting, though, and I've been talking a lot with folks about, like, what is it about League of Legends that appeals to you? Like, what what in League of Legends feels good and what in League of Legends feels bad? Um, because I don't think that the answers are quite as straightforward as we might otherwise think. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think, honestly, a big part of it for me is still that I'm doing it with friends, right? Like... Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Like, I have no desire to play this game on my own. Um, and when I when I was, like, pushing to, like, rank up is really when I, like, I would get the most frustrated really was having the least fun, amount of fun. Um, playing it with friends is still is still fun. So I think that's that's kind of the key, at least for me. Yeah. Um, okay, well, very cool. Uh, uh, so we're, 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 we're winding down now. So just a couple of, of things to take care of. First of all, next week is the 200 uh, episode spectacular. Send us your questions. We are still painfully low on questions. Uh, we would like more questions. Send us your questions, please. Um, although we do have some now. We, we, are, we are up from zero. Um, uh, what else did I want to say? Oh, um, if any of you, um, or this is a general announcement. Uh, uh, the Millennium Satoshi Khan's Millennium Actress is going back into theaters um, for the first time in a long time in America. It had a very limited release when it came out in, like, I think the 80s. Um, uh, it's an anime film, by, like I said, by Satoshi Khan. Uh, it's very it's supposed to be very dramatic. I haven't seen it yet, but this Tuesday is the subbed version, and I think it's next Wednesday. It's the 19th, I believe, is the dubbed version uh, with an all-new dub by an American company, which I have heard is supposed to be good i'm going to see the subversion i might go see the dub version if i like the subversion enough uh but uh, i have enjoyed perfect blue by satoshi khan um and he has a very good reputation so uh if you'd like to see that that's this is your opportunity to so go check it out it's on fathom events i believe um and uh i think that's everything um everything i wanted to talk about uh do you, do you have anything buddy uh one small thing did i announce mutazioni on the podcast uh, you did uh, last week yeah so mutazioni is the new game coming out of my company akupara games we are publishing it it is by a german or i'm sorry a danish developer dia gute fabrik um i've been tweeting about it a lot it's it's really cool it's really fun uh so take a look out from that i'll also be playing probably finishing up etherborn on the akupara twitch account later this week probably on thursday twitch.tv slash akupara games a-k-u-p-a-r-a so those are the two things that i was looking to plug um yeah yeah well if you'd like to uh, email us what you think about pathfinder second edition or the fast and the furious or any of the other things we talked about on this podcast you reached that Games at gmail.com or podcast.subdurfsplaygames.com. Um, you can also send us your questions. You do that. Send us your questions. You can follow us on twitch.tv slash subdurfsplaygames. You can support us at patreon.com slash subdurfsplaygames. Uh, and uh, rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, I think that's everything I have, buddy. Do you have anything else you want to promote before we close this one out? Nope, I'm good. Uh, in that case, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal 